I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. As of this recording, this is the 20th anniversary of WorldCom filing for bankruptcy. And that was months after the whistle had been blown that they've been falsifying financial statements. Our topic is Cynthia Cooper's Page Turner, Extraordinary Circumstances. And we're not just going to talk about the fraud at WorldCom. We're going to talk about why the men and women behind it committed that act. I wanted to address this topic with someone who could relate to this message. Another CFO who is once in the center of a famous financial statement fraud investigation. His name is Aaron Beam. He's been on the show a couple of years ago, and he had to serve three months in prison for his participation in the financial statement fraud at HealthSouth. Aaron is also an author. He's given more than 1,000 speeches at more than 100 U.S. universities. WorldCom, HealthSouth, fraud. That's all coming up next here on CFO Bookshelf. Before we get started, name a famous financial statement fraud from the past. Number one, I know what you're going to say. You're going to say Enron. Number two, I'm going to assume, I would bet 50% of the audience would say WorldCom. Number three, I bet you don't know the answer. I would say Health South may be up in the top five in terms of financial statement fraud. So my first question for Aaron Beam was, why don't many people know about the fraud at Health South? You know, I think a lot of it is just the fact that the way things unfolded. Enron, WorldCom, Tyco, for a short period of time, kind of really saturated the news with these large corporate frauds. And Enron was so big. And I mean, I think the 11th largest company in the United States. So it got a tremendous amount of coverage. And when HealthSouth came along about a year after that, it's like the, the the people just, they weren't interested. They, oh, oh, it's another corporate fraud. We've heard about that, Enron, whatever. And uh, just people um, just, it just wasn't that salacious. Even though it was very big. And now in Birmingham, Alabama, where the company was headquartered, I've been told that, and I don't know where they did this poll, but they said, it was the second biggest news story in the history of the city of Birmingham, topped only by the civil rights uh, problem that they had in the 60s. That was the biggest news stories for Birmingham ever. And then the Health South fraud was the next biggest thing. So locally in Birmingham, it, it was a huge deal. But nationally, uh, it just didn't draw that much attention. And before we start talking about our primary topic, real quickly, Aaron, Health South growing fast, not meeting numbers. You were asked to massage some numbers, change some numbers, eventually get caught, and then you had to serve some time in prison. Is that correct? I did. Um, I, I actually only served three months in federal prison. And I was. A little bit lucky in that I had left the company long before the fraud broke. 
So I'd been gone for over five years when the fraud broke, and the statutes of limitation had run on uh, fraud, corporate fraud, uh, securities fraud. But uh, it, five years was the limit. So I, I, they were not able to charge me for what everybody else that was involved in the fraud, uh, they could not charge me with that. However, I had signed documents that were given to our banks, and the statute of limitations on bank fraud is 10 years. So I technically was sentenced to prison for bank fraud, not securities fraud. And it just so happens that the banks that got the documents that I signed never lost any money. So the banks never even participated in any lawsuits against me or anything. So um, I was lucky in that uh, the statute of limitation run. That's one reason I got such a short three months. And this has become a essentially a mission for you, you, what you you've learned a lot through this experience. You wrote the book Health South, the wagon to disaster, and of course, we did an interview with you two years ago, and would highly recommend. In fact, it it's one of my favorite interviews I've ever done. Uh, getting to meet you uh, a couple of years ago, and again, highly recommend the book. Since then, since you've written the book, you've been doing a lot of public speaking around the country. Is that correct? I have. I started in uh, late 08, and uh, I've been speaking for about 14 years now, and I've probably given a thousand speeches. I've spoken to a hundred different universities. About half of what I do is to university students, particularly accounting majors, business majors, and I've got uh, quite a few universities that have me speak every year. Uh, Penn State, University of Kansas, Tulane, LSU, um, a, a lot of schools have me come speak every year. So uh, I I think what I'm doing is, is making up a little bit for what I did wrong uh, because all of the professors that have me speak say that the, the kids studied the case the case studies of Enron, WorldCom, what have you. But it really is just another something in a textbook. And But when I come, I'm there. They can actually see me read my body language um, and hear my enthusiasm for promoting ethics. And it, and it, it, it goes well. This is, and we are recording this. I'm going to give this a timestamp. We are recording this in the summer of 2022. So this is the 20th anniversary of WorldCom filing for bankruptcy. Wow. And, and I'm going to tee up. Here's, here's a softball question. I hope everyone knows the answer, but I still want to ask you, why is this story? Why is the WorldCom story? Why is it important to remember, why is this story still relevant 20 years later after its bankruptcy filing? Well, I think these large corporate frauds are, stay important because unlike minor 
frauds where somebody steals money from petty cash or whatever. Um, these frauds really impact thousands and thousands of people, and they cause people to lose jobs. Pe- millions of billions of dollars are lost because of those frauds, and the public needs to understand how these things happen. Um, if you don't mind, I would like to distinguish a little bit of the difference between the Health South fraud and WorldCom and Enron, if you don't mind. No, please do so. Thank you. Uh, WorldCom's business model went bad. The telecom industry had peaked and they weren't growing as rapidly. There weren't that many more acquisitions to do. And so their numbers started to go down because the, the business had changed. The model had changed. And they were having trouble meeting their numbers because of that. In the case of HealthSouth, we really never had any trouble making our numbers. Our business model was sound. We were doing great. Um, So it wasn't like I had to cook the books because we just couldn't make our numbers. It was really a case of greed. Richard Scrushy, who was the CEO, every year, uh, over-promised what we could deliver. Uh, he knew what we really could do, but to keep the stock price going up to meet his financial goal, and his financial goal was to become a billionaire. He had told the media and everybody in Birmingham, Alabama, he wanted to be the richest man in the state of Alabama. He wanted to be a billionaire. And he asked the board of directors to give him millions upon millions of stock options every year. And so he needed that price of that stock to keep climbing and climbing. So we weren't in, I think people sometimes mistakenly think we got into financial trouble. Uh, Our business wasn't strong. We couldn't make our numbers. So we started cheating. We cheated to deliver the numbers for Richard Scrushy so he could become a billionaire. Now, we can talk a long time about why does somebody, why do people let themselves get in that kind of trap? Why would you cheat like that to make somebody a billionaire? And and if you want, later on, we can talk about that. But that's the real cause of the Health South fraud. It wasn't declining business or We weren't running our business well. We were a well-run company with great patient outcomes. Uh, Dr. Jim Andrews practiced at our hospital. He's the renowned orthopedic surgeon in the United States. He did Bo Jackson's hip, Troy Aikman's shoulders. He's the doctor that told the New Orleans Saints that Drew Brees could still throw the football and they should hire Drew Brees. And you saw how that turned out. So we had that kind of clinical uh, reputation. Now, in the case of Enron, nobody knew what the hell Enron even did. It was all a a house of cards, a game of playing with their numbers. Uh, Their business model was bogus. So the Enron fraud, the WorldCom fraud, very different from the HealthSouth fraud. And to our credit, HealthSouth never went bankrupt. Uh, when the media announced the HealthSouth fraud, 
they said, HealthSouth will have to file bankruptcy just like WorldCom, just like Enron. There's no way they could survive this. They did survive it. They're on the New York Stock Exchange today. They're selling about $70 a share. They have changed their name a year or two ago to Encompass. But uh, the company, my point is the company was strong. And in spite of all the trauma from the fraud, they survived and is still a very valuable uh, company. Going back to WorldCom, and I, I'm glad you brought up WorldCom because it's my understanding that in the telecom industry, it was like a gold rush. And yeah. what WorldCom was doing, they were slowly buying up all of these carriers. And eventually they thought, hey, let's just build our own network out. And then you had all of a sudden excess capacity. There's, all, there's also deregulation. And there's another, there's another, let's go back to Richard Scrushy. Big difference between him and Bernie Ebers. Now, Bernie Ebers comes to the office every day with cowboy boots. Uh, he, he may look a little bit like uh, Andy Taylor, uh, that, that, just that, that look. So I don't think maybe as many pretenses. Now, he did like land. He liked buying land. But I almost get the idea that Bernie Ebers, this is, could be controversial, and this would be good to ask the author, I, I've reread this book, Extraordinary Circumstances, which is Cynthia Cooper's account of uh, this fraud unraveling. When I first read that, he's guilty. And then I'm asking myself, <laughs> was he smart enough to even go to the CFO and say, do this, cook the book, make these numbers be better? So maybe I can ask you, it's going to be conjecture, it's going to be opinion, uh, Bernie Ebers, completely different persona than, say, the CEO you work for. But do you think he knew what was going on? Do you think he did? Did he approve it? Do you encourage it? Did he push it? I, I certainly it's hard for me to say because I wasn't there. But uh, I, from everything I can tell, I don't think he was involved in the accounting and the understanding of the numbers like right. Richard. Richard Scrushy very, very much understood the numbers and what it was all about. And he understood um, how we cooked the books and how it was all done. Um, so I, I think there's probably a, it's interesting. One of the things I've been lucky to do in my speaking career, I've spoken with uh, quite a few FBI agents who have been involved in these frauds, particularly the Enron case. Um, recently, I met the lead uh, FBI agent, uh, Michael Anderson, who actually was headed up the Enron investigation. And, and then there's a FBI agent, uh, retired now, who teaches, he, he is a CPA and he teaches in Atlanta. And uh, his name is Victor Hartman. And we talked a lot. I spoke with him quite a few times and we talked together and he says, you know, every fraud that he, and he was a white collar FBI agent investigating frauds of all kinds. He said, they're all real different. If you start generalizing and saying this fraud is like that fraud, they all have their own personality and their own um, 
reasons to, of why they happened. Um, he said, even on an individual level, he said one of the things he liked to do when he was interviewing somebody that had been at the center of a fraud, he would say, well, why did you do it? Why did you commit the fraud? And they would say maybe, well, I was having financial trouble and I needed money. And he said, then I would ask, why were you in financial trouble? <laughs> and he said, they would tell me. And then I would just keep asking why, why, why every time they gave me an answer, like peeling an onion back. And you, eventually you get to the bottom and you understand why these people commit the, the frauds and the crimes that they do. And it's all very different. It, it's uh, uh, they're, they're very different. And, and that's why I, I just wanted to go out of my way to mention that the Health South fraud was very different from the Enron fraud, very different from WorldCom. Um, Enron, uh, I think there's a book about them, the smartest guys in the room. Yes. And they saw themselves as being just smarter than everybody. And even today, if you talk to these guys, they'll say, we got everything approved by our auditors, by our lawyers, by our board of directors. We were up front with what we were doing, and we really don't feel like we did anything wrong. The point they're missing is that if you are an accountant and you majored in accounting, the first thing you learn, the purpose of financial statements are to inform people about the true financial nature of an organization. Right. They missed that at Enron. They were about making the numbers tell their story the way they wanted to tell it. And it was very bad accounting. It was almost stupid accounting. But they they were so smart and they could reason with their auditors and everybody for them to accept their all of their off-balance sheet stuff and everything. So their fraud was just almost driven by their large egos of themselves. Uh, so it, it, that's very different from, uh, very, very, not like Bernie Ebers at all, really. So I want, I want to test your accounting expertise. Uh-oh. Aaron? Aaron, former CFO, I guess yeah. once a CFO, always a CFO. I guess so. What is, what is, and I need a drum roll, what is prepaid capacity? What for, for $1 million, what is prepaid capacity? We'll be right back. Money is all around us, and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it, and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration.
it's nothing that I studied. <laughs> I was studying accounting. There was no such thing as prepaid capacity. That, that is the most <laughs> ridiculous concept. But going back to what we said, they overbuilt. So there was excess capacity. So here's what the CFO reasons in his mind, Scott Sullivan. Right. He reasons that, well, we've overbuilt and we want to follow the matching principle. We want to match up our costs with the revenue. So if let's just, let's prepay, let's, let's set up a deferred cost. I would, I would think the better term is not prepaid capacity, maybe deferred uh, capacity, but prepaid capacity in this context is We've got all this expense, all this depreciation. Let's create a deferred cost to prepaid. Now, when the revenues start kicking in, now we'll start amortizing that prepayment under the matching principle. That's what they did. That's exactly what WorldCom did. So they started taking a lot of these expenses and then converting them to various kinds of assets. And these were not just, a lot of people are familiar with, with uh, QuickBooks or whatever, whatever the Sage product is. You might think, oh, okay, they did one journal entry. No, it was hundreds and thousands each quarter to be able to, they didn't just do these entries. They created them to hide them. These were not easy to detect. Had you heard, you probably read the book, uh, Cynthia's book, but were you aware that's how they created this fraud? Yes, uh, in general. And it's been a while since I read the book, and I I probably need to go back, as you did, and reread it, uh, because I like to totally understand these things. But no, that's that's what they did. And even early on, uh, HealthSouth was capitalizing uh, their startup costs when they started up new centers. Now, these were expenses that we incurred, uh, like hiring staff, right. training. They're not seeing patients yet. Right. So we call it startup expense, and we wrote them off over five years. And that's a pretty, that's acceptable accounting. But um, when things got, we weren't making our numbers for Richard. Um, we probably carried that to an extreme. We probably didn't write off over the five years that we should have because we're trying to make those numbers. So um, that, that, that capitalizing, figuring out how to turn an expense into an asset is, is really a pretty old trick. And it's almost sort of taught in the accounting literature uh, that you can capitalize pre-opening cost, and I, I'm sure that's where they got got their logic from to do what they were doing. You know, and I'm not. I'm in no way am I condoning this, but I'm I'm going to say shame on all of the financial <laughs> analysts at the time covering WorldCom yeah. because all you have to do is look at your operating cash flow over right. a trailing four, eight, or twelve quarters, and you're going to see, okay, my revenue is doing whatever it was doing, but yet my operating cash flow keeps going down, 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 irregardless of earnings. So I'm, 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 I'm questioning what were the financial analysts thinking 
as this was starting to unravel, even before these fraudulent entries were made, how come no one is questioning OCF, operating cash flow? I don't get it. That that should have been raised by somebody early on. And again, even in your situation, someone should have noticed what's happening to operating cash flow. Well, they did. People started noticing, and this was long after I left. I left in 90, gosh, when did I leave? Um, 99, and fraud wasn't discovered in 2003. But well after I left, analysts started saying, there's something wacky about wholesale's cash flow. It doesn't seem to match their earnings at at all. So uh, it it eventually, the cash flow will tell the tale. So, uh, but analysts, Analysts are slow. There's a thing about Wall Street. It's called putting lipstick on a pig. Analysts, it's easy to recommend a stock, but it's very dicey to to unrecommend a stock. And people don't like for their analysts to always be telling their customers that they should sell stocks, particularly if their brokerage house took them public and they've been touting their stock. Then the day comes that they should be saying, you need to sell this stock. They're really, really slow to do it. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. I want to read a quote from the epilogue in Cynthia's book. In many ways, this story, and that's her book she just wrote, this story is about human nature, about people and choices. It shows how power and money can change people and how easy it is to rationalize, give in to fear, and cave under pressure and intimidation. I think Cynthia hit everything, everything of why people either do what they're doing or give in to committing fraud. Did she get that right? Did she leave anything out, Aaron? No, she's she's right on. And um, um, the thing that keeps coming back to me, and I didn't realize at the time, but today I, I, I realized I was living in a cult-type environment. Richard Scrushy had created a cult. Uh it was very, very unpleasant to ever disagree with him on anything. And over time, people that disagreed with him sort of went away. They got fired or they just couldn't keep working there. But if you wanted to stay there and you wanted to keep me on the hell South wagon, uh, you had to agree with Richard on everything. And over time, he built his board of directors for a cult. All of us key employees were part of the cult, uh, <clears throat> and we lost our objectivity. And it was, uh, um, I, I realize it now looking back, but I was, I, all the signs that were there, they were there. Nobody ever disagreed with Richard Scrushy. Whatever he said was law, and you had to agree with him or you had a short career at HealthSouth. And I'm I'm sure, Aaron, there's some intimidation 
Oh gosh. Yes. W- w- within the walls of, of WorldCom with Bernie Ebers, the founder CEO and, and uh, Scott Sullivan, the, the CFO at the time. Um, I, I want to name some, I'm not going to say their last names, but these are some of the lower level to mid-level accountants who were involved. There's Troy, Betty, and Buddy. Buddy uh, may have been at a little bit higher level of management position. So three accountants under the controller, and then you have David, uh, the controller. So beyond the CFO, you had the controller, and then three accountants under under David, the controller. This is a case of good people committing a bad act. Cause I go back and reread these stories. Again, these were good people. Mm-hmm. Why did they give Why couldn't they just say, no, wait a minute. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. Now, let me go ahead and say this up front. Scott Sullivan says, we're going to do this entry. The numbers don't look right this quarter. Let's just, let's just do this entry to make the numbers look the way they should. And hopefully this will correct itself the next quarter. Well, they kept doing that and the numbers didn't <laughs> self-correct. So right. I think the first time they did it, they thought they rationalized. But now you get into the next quarter, the, the, the fifth quarter, the eighth time they do this. Why isn't someone saying, I've got to stop doing this. This is wrong. What's so hard about that? It's just, you know, you're, you're, once you get in, once you get in deep, uh, you start, you rationalize. That's just the big word. You know, you you don't want to cause the company to fall. You don't want to make people lose their job. And, uh, but it's sad. It's sad once it, it gets to that point. I was saddened for them. And I don't know if these types of hotlines exist. There are hotlines for whistleblowers. Can those same hotlines be used for people like a Troy or a Betty? Can they call in and say, I have been asked to do something I don't believe is right. It's like we need a hotline for accountants, for anyone placed in that position, because they need someone to talk to. Do you think that would have made a difference? It could have. It could have. And, uh, you know, as a result of these large corporate frauds, uh, most every large company now does have a hotline. And I haven't been in the in the marketplace working as a financial person in years, but I am told that those hotlines are there and people can use them to report uh and with the Dodd Frank law, if you're a whistleblower and you you expose the fraud and the government collects a large sum of money because of that, you can get part of that money. So there's actually financial incentive to be a whistleblower. But um, I think one thing we might want to talk about in some depth, though, is whistleblower and why aren't there more whistleblowers and um, that kind of thing. And I, I have some comments on that. If you'd like me to make them, let me, let me tee this up for you. Okay. Whistleblowers 20 years ago, not a good thing. And, and Cynthia hit hits this. She has a whole chapter about whistleblowing 
And she went through a lot of stress, a lot of sleepless nights. I mean, she needed medication to be able to be able to sleep. And I cannot even begin to relate what she went through. There are people that did not like her. Do you think the stigma of whistleblowing today is a lot different than even say 10 years ago and especially 20 years ago? Again, because I'm not out there working in a company anymore, it's hard for me to say, but I've thought a lot about this and I think it goes back to how we were brought up as children. We were, I was taught, don't be a tattletale. You're taught, don't be a tattletale. It's not good to be a tattletale. Now, you know, and this is, your parents probably tell you that when you're arguing with your brother or sister about a toy and you run to your parents and you say, Tommy's playing with the toy and he won't let me play. And they said, don't be a tattletale. And, uh, but there's a certain time tattletelling is a good thing. If your little brother was playing with matches and he actually started a fire that set the house on fire, it would have been good to have been a tattletale. So you, you, you have to, when you're going to be a whistleblower, you've got to think about the circumstances of what you're trying to accomplish. And there are some levels of, Cattle telling that you really don't need to do. Um, if you see somebody just cheating on an expense report, you really shouldn't send a memo to the CEO of the company tattle telling on Mr. Smith because you know he he cheated on an expense report. The correct thing to do is for you as an individual to go to your friend who cheated on his expense report and just talk to him about it and say, look, Bill, you you shouldn't be doing that. You you really shouldn't do that. And just explain to him that cheating on an expense report is is a serious thing, but you don't want to, you want to give him a chance to stop and before and not lose his job and not uh, have a big black mark against him. So, um, it's, um, I saw a cute cartoon the other day. It was, a uh, a, a little boy had his hand in the cookie jar and, um, his brother or sister was tattletelling on him. And the brother or sister said, I re- would rather be referred to as a whistleblower. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Cynthia's book. And I, in, in prepping, in prepping for our conversation, uh, Aaron, even though I had, had read, actually I've read this book twice before, but I thought, you know what, I'm still going to reread it. And as I went through it the last time, a few weeks ago, it's like, wait a minute, Cynthia's book is a memoir. It's not just, here's what happened at WorldCom. She goes back to her childhood. She's talking about her grandparents. She's talking about her parents. So this is a beautiful book and and she'll go back and forth. She'll then, I mean, she'll talk about what's happening in the, in the present time as she's writing. And then she'll go back to her job in Atlanta. And then she went through a a breakup with her husband. So she's sharing all this. So it's a beautiful uh, book 
And she hits on several topics. She talks about women in the workplace. She talks about motherhood. She talks about promotions. She talks about stay-at-home dads. She talks about role models and mentors. She talks about having dual bosses. And obviously, we can't talk about all those topics, but I do want to put one of her topics on a pedestal. And you may say, Aaron, I don't have a lot of insights on that, but I just want to give a shout out to Internal Audit. Because when I went through this book again, I'm I'm thinking, dang it, she had limited resources, but she had a highly dedicated team, smart team, and they had her back. I just, again, I want to raise up, if you work at Internal Audit, you guys are amazing. I think internal auditors are as good as any McKinsey consultant, Bain, Accenture, BCG. Uh, You guys are the consultants internally, and I tip my cap to you. If you're an internal auditor and have not read Extraordinary Circumstances, you need to. Did you deal with internal audit at Health South? Well, (laughs) this was prior to Zorbane's Oxley. Okay. Uh, under Zorbane's Oxley, the internal audit function has to report directly to an independent board member. Sure. Well, I was at HealthSouth. The internal audit function reported directly to Richard Scrushy. And he actually told... You're the kidding inter- me. <laughs> You're joking. Oh, the internal audit people He says, I do not want you looking at our corporate books. He says, we have outside auditors for that. Your job is to go out in the field and make sure people aren't stealing our petty cash or embezzling from us, that sort of thing. Don't concern yourself with our corporate books. Of course, Zorbane's actually forbids that now. So, (laughs) no, it's... um, uh, they literally didn't. They 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 were catching people cheating on expense reports and stealing petty cash and stuff like that. But they 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 weren't they weren't allowed to look at our corporate books. Isn't that amazing? Uh, yes, I'm, I'm trying to think of a, another word beyond amazing. Uh, that's uh, I'll I'll just say that's that's very yeah. interesting. Well, before we wrap up, uh, I always like to ask. Every person we talk to, mainly for because I'm nosy and I'm interested. What are you reading? You, you you're a reader. I know you you read widely. Uh, what are you reading these days? Um, I read a really good uh, biography of uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln recently, uh, and it was a I think it was called a Team of um, Oh gosh, I forget the exact name. Is of it Team of, Team of Rivals? Yes, yes, Team of Rivals. That book I, is great. I thought it was one of the best books I've ever read, and it really made me have great, great respect for Abraham Lincoln, how he got people to follow him, even though they, to some extent, hated his guts. But he he is was so smooth in getting people to work for him. Another that I just was blown away uh, was another biography about Gertrude Bell. Have you ever heard of Gertrude Bell? Have not. Have not. She she was born in the late 1800s, and she became good friends with Lawrence of Arabia, uh, 
in Winston Churchill. And she was, she was from England. She was from a sophisticated, rich family. But she became fascinated with the culture in the Middle East. And she went and lived with the tribes of uh, factions in the desert there. And she would get a, a team of camels and go into the, to meet with these people. And people don't do that. These are vicious, mean people. They will rape you. They will murder you. They will steal everything you have. Don't do it. She did it anyway. And she became known as the most powerful woman in the world around the turn of the century. Is that uh, that the book Desert Queen? Yes, Desert Queen. Gertrude Uh, I've I've put it in my queue. That's it. It is right up there with the Lincoln book. In fact, she's more interesting than Lincoln. She climbed mountains. She did all kind of crazy things. Um, She was an adventurer. She was an archaeologist. Um, Just amazing, amazing woman. She, uh, there's a picture of the cover of the book, and it's a picture of her, Winston Churchill, Lawrence of Arabia, and a couple of other people, and they're all riding camels. And the, the, the funny thing was, Winston Churchill fell off of his camel, <laughs> and uh, she did not fall off of her camel. When you speak to these college students around the United States, when you wrap up, what are you telling them? What are you recommending to them? I, normally, I would ask, what are some takeaways that we can gain from the Health South story, the WorldCom story. But let's tweak the question. So you're t- you're talking to these young men and women who are going to go out and have careers in corporate finance, accounting, data science. What's the message you want them to take after they've heard you speak for an hour? The, the big message is that it can happen to you. When you get out there and you've got all this textbook learning about how to do accounting and what have you, you are going to come into contact with people who are going to want you to throw out what you learned in school and do the accounting so that it helps them personally. Uh, You're going to be asked to cook the books. It's going to happen to you. And it's... uh, you have to be aware of that. You have to practice ethics and all the little things you do to build ethical strength. So when that day comes and you're in an ethical dilemma uh, and you've got decisions to make, you've already thought about it and you can make the correct decisions. And that's what I say. I, I would like to comment one last thing if I have time. Please. Uh, you talked about WorldCom and three million entries had to be made. Well, Health South had paid taxes on all their funny earnings, which was over three billion dollars of bogus earnings. But they they didn't want to get caught for income tax evasion, so they paid the income taxes on it. Well, when the new management came in, they asked the IRS if they could get a refund. Um, yeah, that's it. So believe it or not, the IRS 
yes, you can get a refund. Oh my goodness. Got to give us the correct numbers. We had, you got to refile all the uh, tax returns with the correct numbers. So they hired Grant Thornton to come in and read the financial statements from 19, from 1996 to 2003. Oh my goodness. It cost, as best I could tell, it cost about $200 million to restate the statements. Uh, it was massive. The uh, Marriott Hotel down the street uh, from the corporate office during the week was full of Grant Thornton people. The airline had to add an extra flight in, out, in and out of Birmingham on Sundays uh, coming in and Saturday or Friday going out. Uh, rental cars were in short supply. There were so many people working on restating the numbers, and it took them months and months and months and cost the company over $200 million. But they got, they got their tax refund. Oh my goodness! They spent two hundred million, so presumably they got several multi- yeah. multiples of that back. One year, they actually paid more in income taxes than they actually had in earnings. Oh gosh, that's so, inc- so their tax rate was like based on true earnings was like one hundred and twenty percent of earnings. <laughs> Aaron, I. But, I could just keep talking to you and I hope we need to do this again. If you are ever in Missouri doing a talk at the university of Missouri in Columbia or at Washington um, university in St. Louis or Rockhurst uh, in Kansas city or somewhere else, please, please let me know in advance. I will be there. Uh, I want to be on the front row. No problem. I again, thank you so much. This is Conversation number two, first one is great. This is great. Uh, just all the best to you as you continue speaking and uh, making a, a positive impression uh, to these young professionals as they move into their careers as well. It's it's um, it's very rewarding to have these ethics professors that are tops in their field say, I'm the best thing that happens in their ethics class when I come talk to their students. So I'm very proud of that. You are listening to CFO Bookshelf, lifelong learning for financial leaders. And now back to our host, Mark Gandy. Aaron Beam, I could talk to him all day. His books, two of them, Health South, The Wagon Wheel to Disaster, did you know he self-published that book and he sold over 10,000 copies? And that is a ton of books for being self-published. His other book is The Ethics Playbook. We've still not talked about that book yet, and we will in a few months. So Aaron, he will be back to talk about his book, The Ethics Playbook. Again, if you've not read Extraordinary Circumstances by Cynthia Cooper, read it. Read it. In the narrative nonfiction genre, one of the best I've ever read easily in my top five in narrative nonfiction. Guys, we need to call this a wrap. I'm Mark Gandy. This is CFO Bookshelf. (laughs) 